Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada live stream for Thursday, November 2nd. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, Associate Editor with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley and John Elmer. We have another packed show for you today and we appreciate all of you tuning in as we head into the fourth week of this genocide in Palestine. Uh, after remarks from our Executive Director Ali Abunima, we'll be joined by Ghada Ajil and her daughter Raida and also by Roger Waters uh, later on in the show. We also have a video message from our friend Khalil Abu Shamala in Gaza, so please stay tuned. Um, and with that, Ali, your opening remarks. Here's what the New York Times printed on Monday. It became evident to US officials that Israeli leaders believed mass civilian casualties were an acceptable price in the military campaign in Gaza. In private conversations with American counterparts, Israeli officials referred to how the United States and other allied powers resorted to devastating bombings in Germany and Japan during World War II, including the dropping of two atomic warheads in Hiroshima and Nagasaki to try to defeat those countries. Let me translate that into plain English. Israel is modeling its attack on Gaza on the American atomic bombings of Japanese cities and the British firebombing of Dresden. Together, these horrifying and completely unjustified atrocities killed hundreds of thousands of people. Israel is likening pa the Palestinians in Gaza, a deeply impoverished population of 2.3 million people, most of them refugees, to the Japanese Empire and the Third Reich. And Joe Biden is fine with all of that. By the measures of Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and Dresden, and with close to 10,000 Palestinians killed in the last 26 days, almost half of them children, and new massacres almost every hour, Israel is just getting started. What the New York Times printed in its usual passive tone and buried deep inside an article isn't surprising. Israeli leaders and their fanatical, bloodthirsty supporters have said it themselves. Here's Tsipi Hotevli, the Israeli ambassador in London. Let's take a look. On history, when you fight Nazi Germany, mm. you knew that there were many, many civilians got attacked from your attacks on German mm. cities. Dresden was a symbol, but you attacked Hamburg, you attacked other cities, and altogether it was over 600,000 civilian Germans that got killed. And was it worth it in order to defeat Nazi Germany? And the answer was yes. And then here's uh, US Senator Lindsey Graham. Graham a Republican, although he might as well be a Democrat. Is there a threshold for you, and do you think there should be one for the United States government, at which the U.S. would say, Let, let's hold off for a second in terms of civilian casualties? I, I, is, there, I, is there a point at no, which no. you would start to question? No, I, if somebody asked us after World War II, is there a limit what you would do to make sure that Japan and Germany don't conquer the world? Is there any limit what Israel should do to the people who are trying to slaughter the Jews? The answer is no, there is no limit, but here's what you need to do, be smart. Let's try to limit civilian casualties the best we can. Let's put humanitarian aid in areas that protect the innocent. I'm all for that, but this idea that Israel has to apologize for attacking Hamas, who's embedded with their own population, needs to stop. 
The goal is to destroy Hamas. Hamas is creating these casualties, not Israel. I don't think anyone's... A few days ago, Craig Mochaiber, the director of the New York office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, resigned from his post. In his widely circulated letter to Volker Turk, the UN High Commissioner, Mochaiba wrote, this is a textbook case of genocide. The European ethno-nationalist settler colonial project in Palestine has entered its final phase toward the expedited destruction of the last remnants of indigenous Palestinian life in Palestine. Let's hear briefly from uh, Craig Mukhaibar himself. The difficult part of proving genocide is intent, because there has to be an intention uh, uh, to uh, destroy and whole or in part a particular group. In this case, the intent by Israeli leaders has been so explicitly stated and publicly stated by the prime minister, by the president, by senior cabinet uh, ministers, by military leaders, that that is an easy case to make. It's on the public record. If we can allege that we see war crimes, crimes against humanity, as we have often done, there's no reason to exclude uh, where we see very strong evidence the possibility of genocide uh, being committed. And I think you're going to be hearing that term more and more in connection with what we're witnessing in Gaza. I feel quite confident as a human rights lawyer in saying that what I see unfolding in Gaza and beyond uh, is genocide. And now we're all also well aware of the leaked Israeli intelligence assessment that calls for Israel to, quote, evacuate the civilian population to Gaza under the cover of moving them for humanitarian reasons. In the initial stage, the Israeli plan reads, tent cities will be established in the Sinai region in Egypt. Subsequently, the creation of a humanitarian corridor to assist the civilian population of Gaza and the construction of new cities in a resettlement area in northern Sinai. The leaked Israeli plan lays out steps for implementation that match exactly what we're seeing in reality. It starts with, I quote, a call for the evacuation of the non-combatant population from the combat zone in which Israel is attacking Hamas. In the first stage, it says, aerial operations will be carried out with a focus on the northern Gaza Strip to allow for the ground maneuver into an evacuated zone that does not require combat in a densely populated civilian area, end quote. It's very clear from the Israeli plan and from Israel's actions in reality that under the guise of targeting Hamas, Israel's real target is the expulsion of the population. Claire Daly, a member of the European Parliament from Ireland, and one of less than a handful of voices of decency in that body, said this in response to Mukhaibar's letter. There will be no hiding behind we did not know when the time comes for European and American leaders to answer for their active role in the atrocities Israel is carrying out. They know it is a choice, not a blunder. The whole world can see we will not forget. By some credible accounts, including its own, Israel has already dropped the equivalent of an atomic bomb, maybe even two on Gaza. 
We know from the horrifying images we see every day, and satellite images confirm the scale of the destruction. And while murder from the air has been Israel's main method of killing up to now, it could quickly be overtaken by famine, thirst, and disease. Water, food, and medicine are still deliberately cut off from Gaza. Yesterday, the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital in Gaza ran out of fuel and was forced to stop most of its activities, rendering 70 cancer patients at serious life risk, the UN has said. On Wednesday evening, Al-Hilu Hospital, also in Gaza City, was reportedly struck by shelling. The hospital had absorbed and replaced Al-Shifa Hospital's maternity ward, which is being used now to treat the wounded. Currently, 14 out of 35 hospitals with inpatient capacity across Gaza are not functioning. Gaza City and northern Gaza have been largely cut off from the rest of the territory as a result of the Israeli invasion. This means that delivery of humanitarian aid from the south to about 300,000 displaced persons in the north has come to a halt, according to the UN. No one can say they didn't know, but here's President Biden once again pretending that the tiny trickle of humanitarian aid coming in through Egypt, and which cannot be distributed to where it is most needed, is somehow a solution. Yesterday saw the largest delivery of life-saving humanitarian assistance into Gaza so far, and more trucks are being cleared to enter today, Biden claimed on Tuesday. As of Wednesday, according to the UN, a total of 227 trucks had entered Gaza since October 21st. That's an average of less than 20 trucks per day, compared with a typical number of 500 trucks a day before the 7th of October. This is a cruel hoax. In reality, this is all part of a very cynical propaganda exercise by the United States and Israel to put a humanitarian face on their genocide. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported yesterday, and I quote, Israel has been emphasizing its involvement in allowing humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip in recent days in an attempt to retain international support and legitimacy for its military operation against Hamas, end quote. But as everyone can see, Israel's main target is not and has never been Hamas. It is the Palestinian people themselves especially children. We see this too in the West Bank, where Israel does not have the excuse of Hamas to justify its escalating American and European-backed savagery. In the last three weeks alone, Israel has killed more than 130 Palestinians in the West Bank, including dozens of children. Since October 7, 2,000 Palestinians have been forced from their homes in the West Bank by settler terrorism backed by the U.S.-armed Israeli military. In the meantime, Biden's Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, is traveling around making plans again. According to Haaretz today, he's discussing who is going to run Gaza after Israel defeats Hamas. Will it be a U.N. force? Will it be a coalition of Arab client regimes? Or will it be the Palestinian Authority collaborator regime from Ramallah brought in on the backs of Israeli tanks to administer the rubble on behalf of the enemy occupier? 
It is quite nauseating to hear of an American official once again acting like an old-time colonial administrator. But this is and always has been their way from the conquest of the continent we're sitting on to their murderous occupation of the Philippines and the slaughter of millions in Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. The Americans had big plans for Iraq too after their invasion. They installed an American dictator, Paul Bremer, and then they thought they could remake Iraq in their image. But Iraqis had other plans and the Palestinians do too. We have started to see global opposition to this genocide pick up. Honorable leaders such as Colombia's president Gustavo Petro have clearly denounced the genocide. Bolivia has cut off its ties with Israel, perhaps embarrassed by being shown up by countries 10,000 miles away. Jordan, which borders Palestine, announced it was recalling its ambassador. Not breaking diplomatic ties, not suspending its peace treaty, not expelling the U.S. military forces that have been sent to Jordan to shield Israel from regional military intervention. This is less than the minimum, but it is what Jordan must think will somehow satisfy the boiling rage of its own population at seeing the slaughter in Gaza. Today, there were reports that Bahrain recalled its ambassador and reportedly broke economic relations with Israel. Bahrain is one of the signatories of the so-called Abraham Accords, the American-brokered normalization agreements between Tel Aviv and various Arab dictatorships that were intended to bury the Palestinian cause. But there has been no statement from Bahrain's government, and Israel insists its ties with the country are stable. None of this is enough, especially after 26 days of televised slaughter. Turkey, which was willing to spend billions on the American project of overthrowing the government of Syria, has done nothing at all, despite the fiery speeches of its leader. And though Russia and China have taken sound positions, these have not translated into much action. Within the United States, we're seeing dissent and protests rise, such as the inspiring disruptions of uh, Anthony Blinken as he made the case for even more uh, aid for Ukraine uh, on Capitol Hill a few days ago. To illustrate, uh, oh, we, well, we can actually take a look at that. Distinguished members of the Appropriations Committee, thank you for this opportunity to testify before you today. America more secure or not? Face of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Not in the face of an intensifying strategic competition in the Indo-Pacific and around the world. If the witness will suspend, and I ask that everyone again respect this hearing, we will suspend until the room is clear. I think it takes real psychopathy to be able to sit there 
so stony-faced when people are calling for an end to the mass slaughter of children, children like uh, Tony Blinkens, who were seen later in the day uh, going out trick-or-treating with their father, dressed up as uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. But to illustrate how out of touch the pro-genocide American ruling class is, consider that two-thirds of Americans support a ceasefire in Gaza, according to a Data for Progress poll published on October 20th. Remarkably, that included more than half of all Republicans and 80% of supporters of Biden's Democratic Party. What must the numbers be like today after another 12 days of Joe Biden's genocide? The only country that has put its money where its mouth is is Yemen, whose Houthi government fired missiles towards Israel in solidarity with the Palestinians. That's what the Western governments would normally call humanitarian intervention. All of this is profoundly distressing, but we must remember this. Israeli and American plans for the region and for Palestine fail much more often than they succeed. The fate and future of Palestine will not be written by the psychopathic war criminals in the White House, State Department, and in the military bunkers deep under Tel Aviv, but by the Palestinian people themselves and by us, all of us, who must continue to protest, to demand everywhere and anywhere we can stop the genocide. Thank you for that, Ali Abu Nima. He's our executive director here at the Electronic Intifada. Uh, we are now going to bring in um, uh, our, our friend Ghada Ajil. She's a third generation Palestinian refugee from Beit Daras. She's a visiting professor in political science at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Uh, Israeli airstrikes have killed 36 members of her family in Khan Yunus. Uh, Rada is joined by her daughter, Raida, who lived in Gaza from 2021 until just this past summer. Uh, Rada, you wrote this piece in The Guardian um, just yesterday, uh, and the opening lines are, my family home was supposed to be in the safe zone in southern Gaza, but last week the bombs came anyway, without warning. Um, can you introduce yourself and your daughter and, uh, and, and tell us about your family and, and what happened. Well, thank you, Nora. Um, my name is Rada and I am a third generation Palestinian refugees. Um, my parents and grandparents have lived in Bedaras, now a village that is no more on the map. It has been depopulated, destroyed during 1948, Nakba. My family, my parents, grandparents has made the journey from Beit Daras to Sawafir, to Hamama, to Izdud, to Jabalia, to Gaza, to end in Khan Yunis camp, waiting for the day in which they will be returned to their home. 75 years now, the family has been waiting. Um, it seems like the history repeats itself because my sister in Gaza City have been, you know, under this shelling constant bombardment and under the direction or following the direction to move to safe area, she moved from Gaza City 
to the south to my home in the refugee camp. And there, that my the granddaughter of my sister has been killed, murdered intentionally and willfully, I would say. Together with, I reported 35 of my family, but now I get the news that it's 45. It has been around 10 o'clock in the morning on October 26, that an earthquake hit my camp. The sound of the bombs has been terrifying. Actually, all the people I talked to who have, you know, survived and lived the other attacks on Gaza, they said this is unprecedented. Probably six, seven missiles or heavy bombs just landed on the home. So you could imagine a bomb, then people would start to run or try, you know, to, to save their lives, and then another bomb, and then another bomb. So six or seven, according to them. So it's it's all is gone. Naif Abu Shamala, this is just across my home. 35 of the, actually, well, from Naif, I think 20. And from the other home, um, Abu Said family, oh, three generation has been wiped out. And there has been the shop um, underneath the house that people has been, you know, buying stuff for their families, necessary things. So again, gone. And still the owner of the shop, Assad, I just learned this morning, is still under the rubble. So it's really horror being belief. You cannot try to comprehend, you know, the devastation of the people there and of us here living this trauma. It has if, if the Israeli occupying forces and the apartheid state want to make the pain collective every single Palestinian, every generation inside occupied Palestine or in the diaspora, on the refugee camp, but to feel it. They bombed these homes, people are still mourning, people are still digging the rubbles, trying to recover the body of Assad and still, you know, leading this epic resistance, going to bakery, get, you know, bread, get water, go, um, try to bring a smile to the faces of the children. It's really that every minute you just see the pain, but you see the resistance, you see the hope. And this is what I always say, they might drop thousands, stones of bombs, as Ali Abu Nama has mentioned, twice like Hiroshima on this dot, but they would never be able to wipe out our dedication for freedom, for justice, and, um, you know, it's really difficult sometimes to, to find the word amid this situation. But yeah, I mean. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And Khayda, um you were just there uh, with your family and, and colleagues. Can you talk about uh, yeah, what um, you're going through as well? Well, actually, right now, as a Palestinian uh, living in the diaspora, um, I think it's the hardest thing being away from your homeland and being away from your people, particularly when they are your family and your loved ones. Um, the ongoing situation there is is really just a source of, of great sorrow and pain that brings every day a new story to, to our homes. 
um, whether it's a new detail of sufferings from um, our own home that was lost in Zahra when it, it was completely bombarded, 24 residential buildings, each compromising of four, um, uh, four apartments for five levels. You're talking about mass, mass destruction of people's homes. Now we're talking over 50% of Gaza. Um, and then it just carries on with, with more devastating news. Um, on October 25th, my aunt's house, or oh, sorry, October 24th, my aunt's house from my dad's side, uh, in Hayil Amal and Khan Yunus, was hit. Um, and a whole square of, of many homes, three of them were my dad's family's side. Uh, what we know were at least 50. What was pulled out were 35. The rest are still under the rubble. Two days later, the, the Abu Shammala uh, massacre. Um, you know, we can't keep up with the martyrs. Every day it's a new list. It's somebody that you know. It's somebody that you've met. Um, it's somebody that's touched Julia. you. It touched your life. Julia, my niece, I lived there for a year and a half and I volunteered with uh, a lot of human rights uh, and, and youth um, organizations and NGOs. And I lived at my aunt's house and every day I came home to Julia, every day. I saw every single little step that, you know, she took into her development of two and a half years. And Julia is just one of almost 4,000 kids now, little angels that are going. And, you know, you, you recall and you say, children, innocent they don't have anything to do with war or they don't know anything that that is beyond their home beyond the embrace of their mother and julia died in her mother's arms and you know you we have a belief in in islam that if god has chosen these people to go as martyrs then they go they are the children they will they will be uplifted with the least amount of pain but it's the people that are left behind it's the people that now you're looking are injured and and don't have the, the right you know humanitarian aid reaching them um we're talking about not just water and food we're talking about diseases we're talking about infections we're talking about amputations we're talking about you know doctors that are using vinegar instead of 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 medical supplies because they are running out we're talking about a completely collapsing system and it is collapsed because so many hospitals are closing every day we're here yesterday doctors instead of pleading to the international community decided to plead to the gazan community they were asking if anybody has a liter of gasoline please bring it to the hospital because if we don't have anything will help people are using oil for their cars just to get through then two days ago, we see some of the cars that are going on Salah al-Din. Every day I took the, that road to Salah al-Din from Khan Yunus to Gaza. And to see a tank there, and it deliberately targeted that car and deliberately targeted the bus after with people. UN, UNRWA, buses that have been taking people from point A to point B also targeted. Israel is above the law. It's above international human law. It's decided to go ahead with every single war po politics and policies that it wants to do, and it knows that nobody can stop it. I, I mean, I talked to my friends when I was in the airport. I called my friend Shayma, and she's telling me, I'm so sorry, I, I missed your call last night. I literally just escaped death. Shayma Shawa, her dad, Nabil Shawa, is now volunteering at Al-Aqsa Hospital every day in, in Tal al-Hawa. And the, the horrors that she tells me that are happening in, in, in the hospitals, 
But despite that, she's still apologizing to me for not answering my call while bombs were falling on her house. Four bombs fell on her house. Her and her uncle's family miraculously got out of, of that house. We talk about my friend Lena and Dream, who I posted something on social media, 21 bodies in, in, in body bags. And they said, that's my family. That's 21 of our close family. My friend today, Dana, Dana Abu'id, from Jabali refugee camp, 80 of her family. We're talking massive, we say we are not numbers, but when we actually come down to it and we're talking about numbers, it's like, how do you fathom such amounts of people gone from under your, you, you don't, you can't, you can't understand it. And not only that, now you start wondering, if I go back to Gaza, what is left? What will be left? Who will be left? Okay, we're mourning our family one day, we're mourning our family the next day, then we're mourning our friends' families the next day, and then we're mourning our losses every single day, we're mourning a loss. But at some point, everybody in Gaza is our family. Everybody is our bloodline. Everybody's our community. And you start wondering, what else needs to be said? What else needs to be shown? What else needs to be conveyed? to these politicians that are sitting on seats, powerful seats. Yeah, I mean, what really words are, are, are starting to run dry. My friends, Mataz and, and Hint, they're journalists on the ground. Every day, they are appealing to the international community, asking for protection, showing the day, the day lives. Sorry, I don't want to take much more of, of the time, but yani, yeah. Horror and belief, probably that's, yeah. that's, you know, I'm... Yeah. yeah. I, I keep saying because it is impossible for us to comprehend. I mean, uh, it's the scale, the scale of the, the genocide. I don't know a single person in Gaza or from Gaza that I have spoken to that has not lost... I'm not talking about one, two, three friends or family, dozens, yeah. dozens. Yeah. Gaza is a small community. It's 2.3 million people. It's a small territory. Now we're talking about close to 10,000 people. And, you know, many are under the rubble. That yes. means four out of every thousand people in Gaza have been killed. It, it won't be long if this doesn't stop that we get to 1% of the population, one in every hundred that's being killed. And we're not, and the number of injured is always multiples of the number killed. And I just keep saying the only thing it reminds me of is, you know, all our lives we hear these stories of Holocaust survivors who will say, you know, I'm the only person left from my family. I lost. Uh, you know, everyone on my mother's side, everyone on my father's side, I was the only survivor or my father was the only survivor. This is what I'm now hearing from people uh, in Gaza. Uh, yeah. Just entire families wiped out. Yeah, and you, you say that uh, what more can we say or what more can we show? They know what's happening and they're doing this to us deliberately. And that's the mm -hmm. part that is really unbearable it's not that it's not that they're not educated or they can't see they know and and what they're doing instead is saying 
what kind of spin can we put on this? What kind of public relations can we do to distract people from this deliberate slaughter that, that we're doing? And that is just right. the thing that is, right. is impossible to bear. Right. It's a continuation, really, of, of just dehumanization and, and desensitization of, of Palestinian lives lost. Um, you know, uh, there's a famous poem, My Body is a TV Massacre. Palestinians' bodies are becoming a TV Massacre. And every day they're coming and, and showing you, um, you know, imagine for a moment living in a place where every breath feels like a struggle, where fear and uncertainty are your constant companion, where basic necessities like food, like water, like electricity are, are scarce. You're talking about the, the blackouts. Yesterday, again, they put Gaza on a, on a blackout, a complete blackout. We couldn't reach anybody. Um, my uncle, my uncle had a, a heart stroke yesterday, two days ago, from the situation that's happening. And really, you look back, and this is history playing again. My grandfather, after he was expelled from, from Sawafir, and he was living in the tents in, in Khan Yunis. And he looked and he had all these lands, acres and acres of land. And he saw his situation now in Gaza, living on, on, on you know, Onerwa base. Or at the time, it wasn't even Onerwa. It was the Quakers. The Quakers. Yeah. And he had a, a stroke. He had a stroke, a, a brain stroke. And he was paralyzed for, for the rest of, of the time that he was there. Now my uncle is living that time again. And we're living the, the Nakba times again, seeing the tents come up in Khan Yunis. It's surreal. It's surreal. Yeah, it's like if the history is repeating itself. Like I think some of the people told me, I think we, um, we're living in October 2023 to wake up to think ourselves we are in October 1948. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really horror being believed with all the meaning of the word. Every single soul is feeling it at the moment. And still this cry for stopping the genocide that everyone is suspecting, including these newspapers when we want to use the term. Now, the UN um, officials, lawyers, experts, human rights, uh, have you know, been not only resigning, but saying that's exactly match the textbook of the definition of genocide. It is all these statements made by the Israeli politicians, military, cabinets, government, intellectual, journalists. I mean, those people who are inflicting this death on Gaza, children, they have been receiving these messages from the children at school probably 20 years um, ago, according to Chris McGreal in The Guardian, kill the Arabs. Those children now are in these tanks killing the Arabs. This is this is the dehumanization of the Palestinian, the dehumanization of everything Palestinian. So Hamas-run hospital, Hamas-run school, Hamas-run orphanage, as you know, this justification to go ahead. All these statements we hear in by politicians, not only the Israelis, but also the Western leaders. Mr. Biden, suspecting all these numbers, and if they are dead, they must be terrorists. This is really unbelievable how this complicity, how this bankruptcy of the West, Gaza is the graveyard of international law, graveyard of Western morality. Shame on the world. And you know, even here, when we're trying 
you know, to give some advices for Shaima Shawa, when their home has been bombed, as a friend, we said, take our home in Zahra. I am happy she did not, because all my neighbors, all my family, even who live in Zahra, ended in streets. You talk about thousands of people attrapped. This is a starvation. This is Dovid Glass when he said, we're not going to um, starve them. We're going to put them on a diet. They now discovered after 16 years of inhumane blockade, they cannot put an end of this willingness for freedom, for dignity. So now the plan of annihilation, of genocide, of expulsion, of continuing the unfinished project of Nakba, this is what we see it. You know, my grandmother has been always telling me, um, whenever we have a generation, they come and kill it. 1956, 1967, 1987, 1994, 2000. Actually, I was saying, what she said, now when I just put every few years this intentional killing of the children, it is the history. And you know what? When we lost our home in Zahra, you know, even a smaller place that have all the memories. We don't have any memories in Beit Daras because my family has been expelled, everything destroyed. So all the memories we built in the past 40 or 50 years, the photograph, the first step of my daughter, the painting that my brother-in-law gifted us, my hard-earned certificates, every single thing of a home, a warm home is gone. All what you held dear, this is why I say they want this um, I would say loss to be collective and felt and continue. So when my grandmother was telling me how they destroyed the home, and then in 1970s, the Israelis started to let Palestinian refugees visit their villages. And she asked him, will you go and visit your home? He said, I would die because my home is my flesh, is my sweat, is my blood. It is the broken person, person you see now. You know now, if my grandfather is alive, I would tell him there is more, you know, or a worse thing or painful thing, not being able to walk in the ruins of your home, but to watch it streamed, live streamed on TV. And you, you know, feel this powerlessness. And you said, it's okay, the home, could be compensated. We can build. But then 24th of October, my husband's sister, all her children, grandchildren, and grand-grandchildren, three generations wiped out, gone. And then the 26th of October, my family, 35, 40, 40, again, numbers. We are not numbers. I mean, as Gaida said, it's going to be so difficult to get to Khan Yunus, and I am not received by Aisha and Naif and their wife. The minute I step in the camp, all the camp come to congratulate us and hug us and say, how are you? And all of that. And every single day they would share whatever they cooked. This hospitality, generosity, the richness of the Palestinian people, no one ever could understand. Yeah. They are the yeah. talented, yeah. the gifted, yeah. the most beautiful souls. Gaza has a magic about it, really. Yani, I left Canada 2021 because after the, the aggression um, that happened in 2021, I chose, I wanted to go see my uncles. I wanted to see my family. I wanted to spend. see Gaza. I wanted to spend time. 
life here will pass by you so quick and you won't feel the time go by. And when I went there, really, I understood what it means to just to feel the magic of Gaza, to feel the magic of people. Yani, Gaza is much more developed than a lot of places here in Canada. And people are shocked by that. We have some of the best restaurants, some of the best food, some of the nicest views on the beach front. We have like, a crazy amount of talent. I've worked with so many of the youths that actually are out there. Their work is outsourced to the world because of how talented they are. And these are young people that will speak English, French, German, and they've never stepped a foot outside of Gaza, fluent. Gazans have a love for life. Palestinians have a love for life. It's not what we only see on TVs. And I know we've gotten used to seeing these bodies come time and again. But they just want to live. They want the freedom. They want to be able to travel. They want to be able to study outside. They want to... And that's their right. That's one of the most basic human rights. And this is what we should have. Yeah, yeah. So this concept of denial for all these youth, actually, when I look again at statistics, 47% of Gaza are children, 55 are under the age of 21. And I go every summer, I see these talented people. And you see this occupation, mastering the land, the, you know, the sea, the air. You cannot foot a step outside Gaza. You can, we have the best beaches, Mediterranean. You cannot fish. You know, people even, you now people talk a lot about this genocide. But take me as an example. I finished a high school in 1988 or 89. When I tell the people here that I was denied the right to go to university, they say outside. I said, no, no, in Gaza. They said, what, for a, for a few months, your family doesn't have money? I said, no, because Israel, the apartheid state, have decided to close all the universities in Gaza for six years. So 18,000 students my age at that point of time were denied. Multiply it with six years. You know, I was living next to the beach because I live in Khanyunis camp. The beach is like 10 minutes from my home walking. Mm -hmm. And I won't be able to go because of the settlements. It's only for Jewish use only you know at the checkpoint in gaza and this now resonates with what is happening in in west bank when we have been held on the checkpoint in ambulances while my husband nephew has been bleeding and they would stop the checkpoint so that they allow the cars of tomatoes and cucumbers to be sent from gosh Gatif illegal colonies to inside palestine or israel this is you discover that you're not worthless your life doesn't matter but palestinian life matter and you see this you know pattern of dehumanization of cancer of demographic bomb of a human animal let them go to the hill level them all there is no civilian in gaza this is the same discourse and rhetoric that has been used for slavery for enslavement for the ethnic cleansing here in Canada and all the settler colonial states. Mm -hmm. This is a pattern and Israel now doing it sadly, unfortunately, with the full complicity of the Western leaders who talk about the human rights. And every expert say that matches the text. But they said, no, 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 no. It's only, it's the 
the story of the occupying power. And this is sometimes what hits you as intellectual. It's really an insult to our intellect to accept, to accept, not to investigate, but to accept the discourse of the Israeli occupying power to start the narrative and then carry on. That's what's the most you know, horrible thing to be here in diaspora, watch life because we are glued to TVs and we see these massacre and what is reaching this world, probably 1% of what we watch here at our home. And not only that, to live the dehumanization of the media here and this ignorance, this complicity and this powerlessness. And you know what, if I wanna end, we still get the hope from the people this morning, I called my uncle, and he has two daughters who finished medicine from Egypt. And now they are in the UN schools. And he said, Noor today have seen probably hundreds of patients. But you know, she writes these prescription, but where to get the medicine? People are sharing now the diabetes bill, pills, the blood pressure. You see this epic of, you know, solidarity of cooperation of one body mm -hmm. and this is what gives you hope people still go bury the bodies go to hospital give water for the doctors or some meals they go and you know um volunteer with each other it's really an epic and this is what i always say this will this hope this will no bomb would be able would be able to wipe out our dedication for our rights, our dignity, full equality, ending of this blockade, return. I mean, when they talk now all this narrative about what is happening, about what is gonna be the situation after these massacre and genocide. Um, again, the same colonial narrative, because they wanna impose all of these um, uh, I would say, uh, plans. But as Ali said, it failed everywhere. Why it would succeed in Palestine? It wouldn't, it hasn't, and it won't. Ghada, Ajil, and Ghaida Hamdan, we want to thank you for being with us today on just... Um, the, you know, the, uh, as as you said, these are all unspeakable times um, for you and your family and your community and your loved ones um, and for all of us um, so far away in, you know, across the world and, 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 and watching this uh, on our screens and getting messages from our friends. And um, so we... We are with you. Um, we're all holding each other in this. And um, I just want to thank you both again for being with us. We'll have you back on again. Khada Ajil, she is a an academic um, a visiting professor in political science at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. And uh, your daughter, Ghaida Hamdan. Both of you, thank you so much for being with us thank today. You. Th thank you. And I, I won't say stay strong because it's hard for us to stay strong. What yeah. I will say is hold each other and support each other because that's really all we can do. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, uh, you are... Um, 
listening and watching uh, the Electronic Intifada uh, for our November 2nd live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Ali Abunima, Asa Wynn Stanley, and John Elmer. In a few minutes, um, we're going to go to a video from one of our friends in Gaza, uh, Khalil Abu Shamala. But first, we wanted to bring on someone who needs uh, barely an introduction, Roger Waters, um, activist, musician, icon, joining us from Rio in Brazil. Uh, Roger, thank you so much for taking some time out to be with us today on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, Hi, Roger. You. Thank you. Not at all, Ali. Good to see you and Asa and all of you. Wow. Well, that's obviously moving beyond belief to hear those um, ladies from uh, Alberta, from the diaspora, talking to us. Yeah. We, in this room, five of us now here together, we are part of the body that they were talking about. And we are not alone. There are billions of us all over the globe we've seen parts of the body that is palestine that is the heart and soul of that wonderful country and they're demonstrating in huge huge numbers all over the world to somehow attempt to get our leaders to start seeing what's going on in a realistic way, because at the moment they are living in cloud cuckoo land. And we can all see it, not just those ladies we were just listening to, not just the five of us sitting here in this studio, but billions of us all over the world. So we all feel a similar extraordinary frustration about watching this genocide in Gaza. And in fact, the slow genocide that's been going on since 1948, this didn't start on October the 7th, as we all know, or in 21, or in 2019, or in 2014, when Max Blumenthal, our friend, you know, wrote 51 days. Or, it no, it started back in the 19th century, and then obviously, just after the war, and in 1947, when the first massacres took place um, at Deir and Atatur and the other places that are now becoming, just becoming now, we're beginning to see documentary evidence and admissions from old men who were in the IDF or who were in the Stern Gang or the Ergen Gang or whoever it was back in those days. Yesterday, I I'm going to ramble because... We, ha we're not, we have not yet be talked about the future, okay? There was a little bit, there was just a vague mention of what happens after this. If there is an after this, it's quite possible that the demented Joe Biden and the demented Netanyahu and the other dementedly and Rishi Sunak and Macron and all the other leaders of the Western world, it is possible that they are willingly driving the rest of us, who they assume to be lemmings, over the cliff into Armageddon, all right? Because an awful lot of this can be laid at the door of a fanatical belief in God. 
the Christian fascists in the United States are slavering for Israel to kill all the Palestinians and survivors of state so that Armageddon can happen and Jesus will come back and take them all by the hand and they'll go to heaven and all the Jews will burn in hell forever and blah, 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 blah. So we should never forget that this heinous philosophy, religious philosophy, is somewhere at the bottom of all of this. Roger. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, that I think bringing up the the sort of power of um, Christian Zionism as as a sort of a, and and Christian nationalism in the United States is one of the drivers for this. I know I've seen that in different parts of the country where you'll see um, Israeli flags up on on uh, on churches. Uh, it sort of underscores that for me, but. You know, now the the I don't know if we can we we have the clip of of you at your concert uh, in Brazil, and I don't know if you've done this in other places. We showed it the other day, but I think it will be good to show it again. Putting up on stage on screen the urgent call, stop the genocide, which is the most urgent thing. And I just want I wanted to ask you. Um, what you're in Brazil right now? I don't know which other countries you're going through through with the tour. Um, forgive me, I have not looked at your tour schedule with everything going on. But we're but what what's the response you're getting there? I mean, I I don't know if you you heard my remarks earlier, but here in the United States, two thirds of people, two thirds, want a ceasefire. And that includes 80% of Democrats and a majority of Republicans. And that was 10 days ago before we even saw the worst of this. So that's in the US, most people want a ceasefire. Uh, and our politicians are completely in, on another planet. What are you seeing in your travels? What was the response at your, at your concerts? You know, it's when you when you're playing in a football stadium and there's forty or fifty thousand people stretched out in front. It's very and you're wearing in ears to hear the music that you're playing and what. It's very difficult to actually gauge the response that is out there. You know, um, but my my gut feeling is that, and I promise you this: when we put up "Stop the Genocide." on four 30-foot square, very, very bright LED screens while I'm singing, lay down Jerusalem, lay your burden down, and which is a song that I wrote in 2015, so it's quite a new song. That's only eight years old. But nevertheless, as you know, Ali, I've been banging this drum for at least 20 years now, So, and I was a latecomer to the party. But... Um, the choir I was speaking about, there it's billions. That's bi I'm quite certain that the majority of the people, I'm in Sao Paulo, by the way. Rio was two nights ago. Porto Alegre was last night. I'm in Sao Paulo. And so, so yeah, it's. I think that you, on um, you know, Intifada, are beginning to win. Yeah, there's, there's, that's what our stage looks like every night in the middle of Deja the, the only thing is that in the song In the Flesh that I do at the beginning, where I was almost banned 
from doing concerts in Germany earlier this year because I was doing a satirical takeoff of exactly the kind of Nazi tyranny. Appetite. Um, so we've changed in the flesh a bit. I now do it in a wheelchair, in a straitjacket, you know, because that's where they want me, actually. They want me in a straitjacket. <laughs> I can't perform. So that's what I do. But the opening bars are prison bars on those four big screens that you saw. And behind the prison bars are the most up-to-date, horrific scenes from the bombing of Gaza that I can find. And we're changing them and updating them all the time. So okay. the opening of that is there every night on the screen. It's, well, we've been doing this, though, for, for years. I was doing this all through the Us and Them tour in 2008. And this, this is not a drill tour. And uh, Roger, with, hang on, just let me finish something, because yeah. I got off the point. Of what we're going to do now, because this is this is fundamentally important because of the Christian right and because of uh, their desire for the end of time. You know, Joe Biden probably has wet dreams about the end of times, and at night, probably he actually probably does. Because that's what we're, he's driving us to. What should happen? What sh I'll tell you what should happen. The Israelis, the Israeli government, not the people. Have you seen the videos of the Israeli police beating up Orthodox Jewish men with their, you know, kappas and their ringlets? Beating them up in the street for saying, we don't believe in massacring our neighbors. It's against all everything that Judaism stands for. Bang! They just smashed them to bits for even saying that it's against their religion to be massacring people. Anyway, I'm losing my thread. No, I'm not. Here we go. Yeah. Israel clearly is a completely failed state. They've been having a go at it since 1946, and it is clearly absolute, total, crazed failure if god did choose them god has forsaken them now look what they've become look what they are doing i mean i'm i'm i confess i'm an atheist but if there is a god he could be doing nothing now but saying not in my name netyahu and the rest of you not in god's name how dare you take my name in vain like this so they would have to then say look we're sorry it's been completely wrong since 1947-48 we're sorry we get it this is obviously we're going to stop doing that now yes please can we please stay here when the holy land becomes one united democratic state a new state with equal human rights for all of the people who live there all the arabs and all the jews and all the christians and anybody else who wants to come and treat each other like human beings and cooperate and bring up their children and 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 encourage the universities and encourage all this great talent that we saw your previous speakers talk about that is the future all right i've said it again and they and of course 
the Israeli lobby will be up in arms again explaining how I'm crazy and I should be in a straitjacket and nobody should ever listen to a word that I say. Well, they're wrong because I speak at least one truth that might be a viable answer to all of this. And I'd love to see somebody debate this with the Joe Biden or this, because what, what this is all rhetorical nonsense. Sorry, Ali, I'll stop now. I, I tend to go on. A <laughs> no, I, I, I have to say that was a, a tour de force and I couldn't agree more that, that you, you said, let's talk about the future. And that is an absolutely beautiful vision. And the one we've been talking about for years, but the one that Israel is, is adamantly opposed to and not just Israel, but the United States and Europe and everyone else. But Roger, what I want to ask you, and and I mean, uh, by the way, perhaps Asa will read some of them out later, but the comments are, are just, people are just absolutely uh, in agreement with what you're saying and, and very appreciative as, as we are. But you alluded earlier about how your concerts were almost banned in Germany and how the Israel lobby calls you crazy and 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 I have to say crazy is one of the nicer things they call you. That's almost <laughs> a compliment compared with with some of what they say. But I get messages all the time from people saying, you know, I want to speak out, but I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job or I'm afraid I'm going to face some sort of repercussions. Not everyone is a rock star. So not everyone can go up on stage and do what they want. Um, and But my question is that there's a lot of rock stars. There's a lot of people with a great deal of power, whether it's cultural power or economic power or political power, who don't use that platform and that voice to speak out the way you are for Palestine, not just Palestine, but for other just causes. And I just want to ask you, as someone who probably hangs out with rock stars more than I do, why do you think that is? What, why, what, what is okay. stopping them? <laughs> <laughs> I don't hang out with rock stars. For All right. Well, I don't know. I don't know what I mean. <laughs> I said probably. I said probably, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I'll, why. I'll, I'll answer your question, though. Not all people who are in the music industry were lucky enough to have had my mum and dad. My father had the grace to die in a battle at Aprilia near Anzio in the bridgehead, fighting the Nazis in 1944. February the 18th, he died. Okay, And my mother, who was a young woman and was serving hot tea to people in bomb shelters all through the Blitz in London and had been on teacher training in Bradford and children in England. Can you still hear me? Yeah, there are. So had become very left-wing. So, so that's huge for me that those politics were in my blood. But then I'll, I'll tell the story again. When I was 13 years old, one day my mother could see I was thinking about something and, uh, and she said, Roger, come here, I'm going to give you some advice. Um, all through your life you will be faced with knotty problems. These are the knotty problems Daddy, that my fellow rock stars, as you like to call them, are facing. 
this is a knotty problem. I mean, it's very simple. We all know, those of us who've studied it know this. Okay, so he said, when you do, this is what you do. You read, 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 read everything that you can about whatever it is. So in this case, it would be reading the history from the Nakba on through to and previous history. By all means, read the Balfour Declaration, but read the whole fucking letter, not just the first sentence. Read the bit about save that. It rights of the indigenous people, non-Jewish people already living there, which is the second. So read everything, and not just the opinions you agree with, read all opinions. When you've done that, you've done all the heavy lifting, the hard work is over. Oh, really, mum, and what do I do? What's the next bit then? And she's, you do the right thing. Well, that's all I needed for my education. You know, yes, of course, I went on into university and blah and all of that, but that, oh, that is, if every child in the world had a parent who said that to them and they believed it, when, and that's what we all do, all of us here in this room and the billions of people all over the world who are going out in the streets, all of them waving Palestinian flags and shouting free Palestine everywhere from Thailand, Australia, and it's all over South Africa, huge movement, 500,000 people in London the other day. That's the biggest thing since we tried to stop. George W. Bush Jr. from invading Iraq, along with Tony Blair and the other miscreants and insane people who ought to be in the Fletcher Memorial Home for Tyrants and Kings. But that is another story. All right, I finished again. Well, well I, have I, I see, I see uh, someone saying, someone admonishing me for calling you a rock star in the comments and saying. Roger is in a class all of his own, and I, I can only agree with that. <laughs> well, um, uh, I don't know how much longer we've got, but I, thank you so much for having me on so that I could listen to that testimony from Canada as well. I have very close friends in the movement in Canada. In fact, I have close friends all over the world in this big family of ours of activists who actually believe in human rights, because that's all this is about. It's all about Paris 1948. I once got a letter from Dion Warwick, lovely singer, you know, and probably a lovely grandmother and a lovely this and a lovely that and how that. But she was, uh, she was um, having a go at me because um, she said I was trying to stop her doing a concert in Tel Aviv. I actually hadn't said a dicky bird. I had no idea she was going to Tel Aviv. But I'm glad she thought I was. And I wrote her a letter, and I haven't got it in front of me. But basically, I said, I've looked you up, Dion, right? In 1948, uh, you were eight, because you're five years older than me, or whatever. And you were living in a suburb of Chicago. Hit, try and imagine this, Dion. There's a knock on the door, you open the door, and there's a bloke there in a sort of paramilitary uniform or whatever. And he pokes you in the chest with his right with his gun and says, Out. I beg your pardon. Out. Go on. There's the road. Go to Canada. What? We live here. My this is my grandparents' house, you know, where I'm not telling you again. Out. 
And then your father comes around the corner and he says, what are you doing? Why are you pointing a gun at my daughter? Bang! And your father's dead on the floor. Dead, stone dead on the floor. Do I have to tell you again? Mm -hmm. And then grandma starts picking up old bit. And you get out, you leave your house and you go walking down the road in a state of total trauma because some fucking stranger has just shot your father and forced you to start walking towards Canada. And your life from then is the diaspora. You have no idea. You don't know why. You know you have How would you feel? I'm asking you to not, now since you brought it up, I'm asking you to not cross a picket line that has been asked for by the whole Palestinian civil society. That is why I support the BDS movement, nonviolent protest movement against. Oh. Uh, looks like we're having some internet issues with Roger. Um, but uh, while we try to get him back on, um, let's go. We're, we're actually going to uh, have John and Ali up next um, to talk about just military analysis of what we're seeing. Um, but before that happens, uh, let's try to get Roger back on here. Oh, Roger, are you there? Roger, they're trying here. to shut you up again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, I am here. Anyway, you get the point. You know, Dion, you have to be able to empathize with others. If you can't, you've got a serious bit of your humanity is missing. Joe Biden can't, okay? Rishi Sunak can't. Tony Blair can't. Well, I, I don't need to go on. The list is endless of people who cannot empathize with her. They can't put themselves in it, and neither can you, dear. I was thinking yesterday about the end of Bob Carroll, Ted and Alice, a film most of you are too young to remember. But it was back, I don't know, in the early 70s. But the end of it is Dionne Warwick singing, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that it's worth living for. That's the lyric, roughly. And so I sometimes think of Dionne and that song at the end of that film. It's got Elliot Gould and a few other people in it. Um, yeah, well, that is, that says it all. What the world needs now. We we have to be able to empathize with the Palestinian people and the Israeli people. Not Let's not forget those old rabbis with their, they're not dreadlocks, what are they called? Definitely not dreadlocks. Being beaten up by the police in old Jerusalem. They're beating up their own just for differing in their opinion of what God's intention is. You know, it's bizarre, obviously. But all we can do is go on trying to increase the size of the choir, telling the choir, we're with you. Every time you wave that flag on a demonstration in Kuala Lumpur or wherever it is, or Johannesburg or London or Toronto or Alberta or Edmonton or, or um, where George Floyd died or anywhere, we are all with you. We are part of this choir. This choir is enormous, absolutely enormous. And eventually it will get through there. 
thick, hence that they cannot go against the people's will. All right, there are many, many, many more of us than there are of them. And they are wrong, we are right. And together we all have to explain to the Israeli government that it's over. You have failed us. All right, you are now, you are now a terrible example of what can happen when supremacist ideologies take over our capacity to empathize with our fellow human beings. This is what happens. And it's fucking awful. And you are doing it. Stop doing it. So we need billions of people to be there in the streets saying, stop the genocide now. I'm doing it every night in my own small way, on my little stage or whatever, and joining you folk here on, on, on whatever your, this podcast is called. And this is all we can do, but thank heavens that we're doing... Yeah, go on, Ali. You've got your finger up. Oh, no, but well, I, I just I want to say <laughs> I know that I speak for many, many... Uh, people in that choir all around the world who say thank you for using your voice and using your platform and uh, that provides a lot of encouragement to other people that they can do the same because there is an effort to silence um, all of us on this issue and to make us too scared to talk about it and I think the more people who speak out the more courage that they have to speak out and the more normalized it becomes to speak out. So it's just Good. critically important that you're doing this, Roger, and we are very, very, very grateful for that uh, well, clarity and support. Let yeah. me just interject. I'm very grateful to Asa Win Stanley for writing his book, uh, The Weaponization of Anti-Semitism, because it's a huge help uh, to all of us to have a tone like that that we can refer to oh, hey so you you have a copy behind you why don't you just show it for for, for people yeah this yeah. is a must read there you go yeah and thank you roger for your support no not at all you can send my cup <laughs> no but seriously thank you very much for um all your it's support. a great book it's a it's a must read. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I Thank read so um, I read our friend I read our friend Gideon Levy's piece, you know, from Harrods this morning. John Whitbeck sent it round in one of his and it, and the beginning of it is him talking about pulling terrorists from the rubble. And obviously his point is that when he pulls a terrorist from the rubble, it's three years old. Mm -hmm. or it or it's eight months old and it's mm -hmm. dead as mud and covered in blood and what oh look another terrorist oh it's oh. chilling but he he's a big part of the voice of the choir as well as are so many wonderful israelis jews israeli jews part of this choir and oh more power to you all that's all thank you roger Thank you. Thanks so much, Roger. We're going to let you go because we know you have uh, concerts to run <laughs> and perform. I concerts. I've got to eat eggs and bacon now. <laughs> well, it's even better. 
That's lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roger. Come Thank back, you. come back soon. We'd yeah, love to have you back again soon. Thank you. That'd be wonderful. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much, Roger Waters. Uh, you are watching and listening to the Electronic Intifada live stream podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues, Ali Abunima, Asa Winstanley, and John Elmer. Um, we're going to go to a, uh, I think it's about a four-minute video message from one of our colleagues and friends in Gaza, Khalil Abu Shemela, a veteran human rights activist and um, uh, who's been trying to survive with his family uh, in Gaza. Uh, so let's go to that and then we'll be back with uh, some analysis from John. Still unbelievable that the international community continue silent. It is shameful that the international community and the world can watch what is going on in Gaza without taking any action to stop the genocide. 26 days of killings, infants, women, innocent people who are very, very innocent. The criteria that we know, it is common that any war happens, happens between two militants armies. But here, the army just target the civilians who are living at homes without, without taking any action or dangerous to, uh, towards the Israel soldiers. What is the reason? What is the reason behind bombing them by the F-16 and by the heavy explosive who kill them while they are at homes. I don't know. I, I cannot, I cannot, I cannot understand or, or find any justification for the people who cannot imagine the hundred thousands of Palestinians in Gaza who enforced to leave their homes and they go to schools, UN schools, hospitals, tent city in Khan Yunis, south of, of Gaza, without the minimum condition of, of, of life. Do they know that these people, most of them are from the very poor families? More than 200 of my family have been killed including very, very close relatives. I could not even say sorry for my relatives, my aunt, my cousin, my uncle, because I am in Khan Yunis and some of them in Rafah and others in middle camps and others from north of, of Gaza. And this is not the a special case it is the case of all the Gazans nowadays. I'm not sure if the people know how, what is the number of people who were killed? How many people the international community and the world need on 
to be killed until they they move and intervene and raise their voice and pressure Israel to stop the continued killings against the civilians in Gaza. The world should know that we are human beings. We are human beings. We have dreams. We have, we have thoughts of a future for better future. Can anybody ask why this number of civilians are killed during the, the, the time, during the day, uh, every moment? Can anybody tell us why the infants, the kids, think of death every time, every moment, and they are waiting for death and at any time? What is happening there is here that the, the kids, the future, the men and women of the future believe that the world look at them as some some part of out of the the the, the earth and and the, the the human beings i don't think that they will forgive or tolerate and i think it is the responsibility of everybody to raise the, his voice her voice to say stop it is enough believe me it is enough it is enough what is happening is out of any body any human being imagination again that's our friend and colleague khalil abu shamala in gaza um and you know since uh, there has been internet blackouts uh, and more communications outages throughout Gaza. Uh, it's really important that we um, are able to receive these kinds of messages and um, to, to be able to play them here on the live stream. So we really appreciate our colleagues who are doing uh, just extraordinary um things uh while they are trying to keep their family safe from israel i, I want to say nora that um while we've been uh, on this uh, live stream i've been getting messages from some of our friends in gaza uh and as you mentioned the internet goes in and out it's often hours before you get a reply but uh, yeah. from uh from our friend Rifat, uh, he talked about who, who we've had on the show, Rifat Al-Arir, who many, many of us know and love, um, a wonderful uh, teacher, educator, writer. And um, he says that there's very terrifying explosions uh, right near where, where they are now. And people are in the hallway of the building, just trying to get away from the windows because even if your building is not hit the shrapnel and the flying glass and the flying stone um, is capable of, of killing people um, another one of the electronics electronic intifadas uh, writers Ahmed Dremli um, who 
messaged me just a little while ago. He said, I'm sick. Uh, my lungs are tired. I'm coughing since the morning. They bombed four houses in the same neighborhood uh, near uh, my house. And that's pretty much how it is all the time when you can even get through from to people. And um, it's simply an astonishing and horrifying scale of uh, killing. And I, I also want to give an update uh, from our friend Ahmed Aburtema, um, the the writer who um, and the founder of the Great March of Return, who uh, is recovering. Uh, he's still in hospital, but he uh, is is recovering. He's he's lucky, luckily, able to get treatment. Uh, but he, um, as so many people in Gaza, is devastated by the loss of his own son, Abdullah, who was 13 years old and who was right next to him when their house was bombed. Uh, and um, Ahmed sent us a piece this morning from Gaza that we will be publishing at the Electronic Intifada telling um, his story and what happened. And uh, I also just want to give a shout out to, you know, it's incredible to me that people in Gaza, uh, people like uh, Khalil, who we just heard from, his daughter Noor wrote one the most beautiful piece I can imagine from Gaza. I don't know uh, if we're able to to show that. I hadn't uh, given Tamara behind the scenes any advance notice, but um, we we uh, it's astonishing to me that people in Gaza continue to write, continue to get their message to us by any means they can, whether it's a WhatsApp message or a text message or a voice message, and they say, please transcribe this, because they want the world to hear them. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the messages that we hear constantly, and it's a terrible message for anyone to have to say, is we don't want to die in silence. We don't want to be forgotten. We don't want to die and nobody knows. And so uh, I just want to give a shout out. And I just want to be clear that we're not saying to anyone in Gaza, we want you to write or we want you to go out. Uh, on the contrary, we just we say to all our, our writers and contributors, take care of yourself, take care of your family. That's all we want you to do. But they continue to send these absolutely amazing uh, pieces and reports. Um, because they want the world to know. So I want to encourage everyone who's on this stream to go to the Electronic Intifada to find some of these articles by people in Gaza, and you know, most of them on our front page, and share them with your friends and family. Share them with the people who are repeating what they're hearing on CNN or the BBC or the CBC or NPR, and say, just read this by someone who's actually in Gaza right now. And um, that's a way for us all to multiply and uh, amplify their voices. Yeah. And Tamara, keep that page up for, for a moment. And I want to bring John in by um, segueing into some of the work that he and uh, our senior editor, Maureen Murphy, have been up to. If you hit that updates button right at the top of the electronic intifada page if you're on the um you know a, a computer version 
um, you can now see a scroll of um, news from uh, day by day. We're updating it constantly uh, with links, with uh, short bits of analyses, with multimedia. We have photos, we have uh, uh, videos and, and links to the SoundCloud of these podcasts. So please go to your website, uh, bookmark the updates page, uh, and that is basically our own internal kind of clearinghouse for the most significant updates of the day as as this genocide uh, grinds on. And so with that, I want to bring in uh, our contributing editor, John Elmer. John, um, talk about the last, you know, I mean, we saw three strikes in Khan Yunus over a period of 48 hours, uh, sorry, of Jabalia refugee camp over a period of 48 hours. Um, what is the current status of Israel's uh, ground invasion up to this point? What can you tell us? Yeah, well, that live updates page is uh, our effort to save everybody's eyeballs from the Western media and to find a place where you can go and get some sane coverage of what's going on. So, um, yeah, check that out. Um, yeah, I mean, what we saw in Jabalia the other day was just brutal. And I think if that's um, an indication of the way that Israel's going to fight this ground operation, I think it's really terrifying uh, for people living there. I mean, we clearly saw um thousands of people i mean just in the media from that uh strike you could see thousands of people that had, had come around to to help and i mean Hara talked about it um these are like double tap strikes where they hit a second time when the rescuers are there i mean cnn and unicef uh i mean people that are not normally speaking about it um you know, CNN talked about children carrying children from that bomb site. And then the Israelis tell us that uh, that's a legitimate target. They call it a high value target. They say that uh, a commander, I mean, the main reason was resistance. Two soldiers from the Gavadi brigades were killed. Um, and as we said before, that's what Israel does. They pull back and then they massacre the civilian population instead of fighting face to face with the fighters that are defending Gaza. And so people run to the scene of that devastating attack and then they get hit with the second, third, fourth, fifth. There was eight missiles on that one house. Um, that's a brutal way to fight war. And if, um, if that's an indication, Jabalia is really the first um, densely populated area. We can see from the footage that we've seen from Kassam videos, just the aerial footage from their drones, that the north has been wasted. They've uh, destroyed Beit Lahia uh, to a large degree. Um, they've destroyed Beit Hanun, and those are the two main axes in the north that the Israelis have moved in on, and they've gotten fierce resistance uh, all through the north. Um, and then, so the Jabalia camp was kind of the first time that they would have gotten into um, like actual urban warfare, not just moving through fields or demolished houses. And the first thing that they do is massacre 200 civilians um, with, you know, scores more trapped under the rubble. 
um, that they don't count in the death toll. They're not counting people in the rubble in the death toll. So it's actually higher than we often talk about. Um, and the Israelis are talking about this as success. They actually showed on the Israeli Air Force Twitter feed the bombing of Jabalia, the civilian homes, 20 houses collapsed on top of people. And the Israelis call that a high value target, which they believe if they're killing a commander of the Qassam brigades from Jabalia, that that legitimates um, the massacre of civilians, which is really remarkable, of course, only a few weeks removed from them telling us that the Qassam brigades attacking military bases uh, in the South and having civilians killed with some kind of unparalleled crime that, that they can't even describe to us because it's so awful. But isn't the Riyam military base uh, that houses the Gaza command, isn't that a high value target? Wouldn't If we talk about the rules of engagement that Israel's using, is that not a high value target? It's certainly a higher value target than the Jabalia central commander of the Qassam brigades, all due respect, you're talking about overrunning the most important base, uh, besieging the Gaza Strip. So it's just obvious. I mean, we obviously it's hypocrisy. Um, but, but if we use those rules of engagement, um, the justification for this genocide in Gaza was the targeting of civilians. There was no word about a high value target. In fact, they've called every soldier uh, every security force in the settlements, every police officer, the BBC still says 1,400 civilians. Um, but when we look at the rules of engagement in Jabalia, um, the Israelis just straight-faced say it's a high-value target no matter how many hundreds of people we kill. And I think when we see what the Israelis are doing right now, they're encircling Gaza City. They're encircling the built-up areas in the north. Um, and we saw Barrage just while we were on the air, a massacre there as well. I mean, I, I wrote down the Israeli army um, communiques, and you see them running into, they say, running into uh, anti-armor units in Beit Hanun. We responded with an airstrike. They don't respond by fighting face-to-face. -face. Um, in Beit Lahia, they, um, they ran into resistance and they called in airstrikes and naval strikes from the sea. Um, and so if that's the way that they're going to fight this urban war, um, like we've said for three weeks now, if this is actually what they're talking about doing, um, it's going to be brutal because we've seen that there's still tens of thousands of people in these hundreds of thousands, hundreds according of to thousands. the, according to the UN, there's the, the UN figure I saw this morning was, um, 300,000 displaced persons in the North of, uh, Gaza in the Northern half of Gaza and Gaza city. And there's presumably a lot of people, I don't know the number who are not displaced in the sense that they're still staying in their homes. So we can take that 300,000 number as a minimum. Um, John, I want to show you a couple of things and ask them about them, uh, ask you about them. The first thing I want to say is last time we showed some of the Qassam videos and um, did some analysis on them. And it appears that that resulted in YouTube removing 
deleting the video of our entire previous live stream that we had on Monday. So we all know that the social media, YouTube is heavily censored uh, in order to prevent free discussion of what Israel is doing. And we were hit by that directly. So unfortunately, we're not going to be able to show any of those any of those videos this time because we don't want our channel to be taken down and we want people still to be able to watch this video but we'll talk about them uh and you know we're not we're, the only thing i can say to people we don't have a lot of power to fight this censorship but one thing we would ask people to do is to share this video yeah. you know the old refrain like and subscribe we have more viewers than people who've liked this video so everyone yeah. who's watching, please like it because that at least circulates it. The algorithm picks it up so that people will see it. Anyway, back to Ali, do you remember in the eighties when um, Jerry Adams used to appear on British TV uh, with an actor's voice? Yeah, because because <laughs> well, that's an aside. I mean, we're get, we're getting a little off topic, but I want to say that shows you how the BBC has changed because yeah. in the nineteen eighties. The British government banned the BBC from broadcasting the voice of people it called terrorists, uh, like Jerry Adams of Sinn Féin, the Irish um, uh, Nationalist Party. Um, and the BBC, in order to defy the government, would uh, put Jerry Adams on. They would show him, but instead of playing his voice, which was illegal, They'd have an actor speak exactly what he was saying. This is the same BBC that now is basically state propaganda. I'm not saying they were great back then, but they, they wouldn't even challenge the government like that now. And and anyway, that, that's another topic, but that's the censorship we're dealing with. But to come back to this, uh, let's put this um, map up again, Tamara. And Tamara, thank you, as usual, for doing such a brilliant job behind the scenes but this is a this is a um i forget exactly who made this but this is sort of a, a visualization person who's in japan um and does open source stuff but they i don't know if we can play this tomorrow or is this a a, a a screenshot but so this is showing this is the middle of gaza so this is on this side uh, on the on the right side is gaza city and on the left is southern Gaza. And, and this is a satellite image over time showing the Israeli advance into Gaza and reaching towards the sea. So basically cutting Gaza in half north to south and cutting off the north of Gaza from the south, which, by the way, gives the lie to the claim that Israel is concerned about humanitarian aid getting throughout Gaza, because how is it supposed to get through this Israeli um, zone? So that's one thing I want to show you. I'm going to show you a, a couple of others and then get your reaction to them. So, uh, Tamara, let's show this uh, item now. And this is satellite imagery that was published in the New York Times. Uh, we're going to get to that. Uh, and this this is part of a bigger image. So uh, if we were to click on this image, it takes you to a New York Times map. I don't know if we can do that, but um, it shows 
all over the northern part of Gaza, locations where the, there are dozens or even hundreds of Israeli armored vehicles. And then the last thing I want to show you, John, is um, this piece from the Times of Israel. If we can put that up, Tamara. Um, this piece is sort of... And this this is an article that uh, we would, would probably reflect what you'd find in any Israeli publication today or any American. Oh, is that the wrong? Oh, I, I guess they... This was maybe a link to a live stream, so now it's a, a wrong. It's not the story I wanted to show. The the link has changed. But basically, oh, there we go. That's it. Yeah. So uh, if you scroll tomorrow, so you can see that they say just stop right there. So they say army engineers are beginning a wide scale operation to destroy Hamas tunnels in areas of the Gaza Strip that have come under Israeli control since the start of the ground offensive. And then they say here, um, so they're using robots and explosive devices and to detonate booby traps. And then there's a quote here from a senior officer in the Southern Command who is apparently not speaking from um, Hamas captivity because, as you've pointed out on a number of occasions, most of the Southern Command were taken, many of them in their underwear, as we saw in the the, the videos from a few weeks ago, but he says maybe at first they were able to harass us, sting us by firing from tunnel exits, but after we established control of the areas, the engineering operation started. Now, the last thing, normally I would show a video here, but I, I'm not going to show it for the reasons that we already said because of the censorship, but yesterday the Qassam Brigades uh, put out a video which shows their fighters emerging from tunnels and using these Yassin anti-tank rockets that they apparently made themselves uh, and destroying at least three, if not more, Israeli tanks or other armored vehicles. So that's what that quote from the Southern Command person appears to be a reference to. And the Israelis have admitted to now 18 of their... Uh, soldiers being killed in it would seem mostly in these kinds of attacks by the resistance so with all that uh, john my question to you is were you wrong all along uh, and is israel doing just fine and now sweeping through gaza and, and mopping up uh, the resistance no, I think that tunnel, I mean, they have the, the the firepower to do that. They have a thousand tanks that they could move in uh, into the territory uh, if they want to do that. I think the tunnels they're talking about are the tunnels that we saw in the video um, that Qassam came out and attacked behind um, is, Israeli lines in the field, in the buffer zone area. So once they came out of that tunnel, the tunnel was presumably... Uh, exposed, although we have a video of it. So somebody from that attack made it back. But I mean, even just that video is incredible. When you think about uh, the amount of uh, commitment it takes to dig that tunnel, um, to wait, to lay in wait for this three weeks, um, and then to come up and, and strike tanks um, and, and record it on video and keep the, the amount of manpower that went into that operation and presumably the tunnel 
um, is exposed by coming out and blowing up a tank uh, that's right in front of it. Um, so I think that it's pr probably fair to say that the Israelis are uh, able to explore those tunnels that have been used in operations against them, which is obviously a completely different thing than going in and finding tunnels and then going down in those tunnels and fighting, which is what the Israelis have promised that they're going to do. Um, I think that what we saw from those satellite images um, is consistent with what we've been talking about. That's the Israelis moving through the buffer zone um, and it's moving into the settlement of Nitzarim, which cuts, which its point was built by Ariel Sharon to cut um, fingers into um, Gaza to separate it. And so those are predictable axes that the Israelis would advance on. Um, and just to be frank, there's only so many uh, gates in their in their wall. So there, a lot of these troop movements are very predictable. And showing a map like that might look impressive cutting in from uh, from the border, but they're moving through open spaces. And also, they've been getting fierce resistance moving. It's not clear that they're um, at this point cutting off the territory all the way to the sea. Um, but that is an area that um, I think we predicted that they would move into. They will move into those settlement areas and they'll encircle the territory. But that's when the war starts. And that's what the Kassam Brigades have said. Um, that's what IDF, um, you know, people said to Seymour Hirsch um, and whatnot, that these are defensive positions at first um, in open fields that are very difficult to fight in. Um, and the Israelis moved through that territory. It took a week. Um, they're still moving. Um, and they're moving into the settlement areas where I assume that they're going to set up and they'll, they're going to enforce a cordon. Um, they're going to encircle the territory. And then they're going to um, have to fight from those positions, which I think will be a next phase of the war. The first phase um, is moving in through the buffer zones and encircling um, Palestinian territory. And then that the talk that the Israelis have talked about is, you know, whether that's going to be just siege warfare, whether they're going to actually literally just encircle the territory um, and force people to um, eventually come out of the tunnels by running out of fuel, um, which is happening um, already in uh, above ground. Um, so we're not clear what that stage is, but I, I think that what we've seen from the Israelis is that they're not um, doing that fight uh, yet. That fight hasn't started yet. They're, um, they're moving their tanks in through territory that they should be able to hold with their massive amount of firepower. You know, there's $100 billion uh, investment that the Americans have made in the last uh, you know, 25 years into this military. They have the physical capacity um, to move their troops into those zones that they previously held. The question is, what happens after that? I wouldn't uh, expect Palestinians to use um, tons of their defensive capacity to hold uh, open fields. The defensive posture, which Abu Obeda said in his message, um, the defensive posture hasn't been seen yet. So these are still the video you talked about with the troops coming out of the tunnel. Um, those tunnels are characterized as offensive tunnels. Um, so that's different than their defensive perimeter that they've set up. And now the question is, 
if the Israelis plan is to do what they've done in Jabalia, which is just kill all the civilians uh, that are still there and avoid the fights with the um, Palestinians. I mean, the Israelis claim at this point uh, 50 fighters killed, and they're saying 20 of their fighters are killed. So they've killed thousands of people and well they actually fighters. claim they claim that they've killed hundreds they they're never very specific but i've seen the israeli military spokesperson claiming they've killed hundreds of hamas uh, fighters but or, or palestinian fighters because of course hamas may be the the largest force but it's not the only one but um even if that were true uh as you point out we're talking about literally uh, you know, 10 to 20 children per alleged Hamas fighter that they've killed at best in terms of a ratio. But, you know, they they do seem, John, to, to be speaking very confidently. They're saying, yes, it's hard fighting and it's very, um, you know, it's very tough and we're having losses, but we know what we're doing and is that is that bluff is that part of the psyops or or are they just you know israel is so powerful it's got such a big army we saw all those armored vehicles is that uh, are they just going to overwhelm gaza i mean you know no matter how smart the resistance may be and how well they've prepared are they not just going to be uh, overwhelmed um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to predict. I wouldn't want to predict that. It's difficult to know. But the the yes, they have overwhelming firepower, no question. And if they want to direct that firepower, I was saying the fifty was the Jabalia, uh, right? The yeah. Jabalia fight where yeah. they where they um, openly admit to killing hundreds of people um, and more, many more children than fighters. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about it. If they're going to waste the ground level um, and completely besiege and starve the population, there's not um, ingenuity, I don't think, that can uh, anywhere in the world that can handle that brutality. That's, um, you know, the question is if they're going to go down the tunnels. The Seymour Hirsch, who's talking to Israeli sources, or I, he put the number at like 65% that their goal is. Uh, to, to destroy 65% of the area that they believe tunnels could be on. So already we're seeing a dramatic revision of the war plan um, that we talked about. But no, I think that they have the possible, they have the mechanized armor to encircle um, and destroy the territory if that's, um, if that's their plan. But what we've seen from Palestinians is significant resistance all the way along. Um, fighters meeting um, the Israelis at every axis. We've seen um, suicide drone attacks from their air force, uh, such as it is. We've seen them drop munitions on gathering soldiers. I mean, we've seen videos that sure look like more than 20 Israeli soldiers have been killed. We saw mustering troops. Qassam released a video of their drone dropping an anti-personnel weapon in the middle of a, a crowd of mustering soldiers. And when the camera, when the smoke clears, there's many of them lying on the ground. I'm not saying the Israelis are going to lie about their casualties overall, 
but they roll them out in this way that's, um, you know, they're, they're very not forthcoming with their deaths. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised, but they're, they're, if there's more, but they're being very, very careful. I mean, I think all pretty much all military analysts that are looking at this um, are saying that they're going very carefully. They didn't go in with, um, with a wave of armor um, because I think they're being very careful not to have a spectacular defeat that follows on their October 7th defeat. They're trying to re uh, you know, burnish their image. Um, and they're trying to get the national project in Israel to focus on this war where they need reserves to fight. I think the last thing the Israelis wanted was to come in and, and fall into a spectacular, um, you know, a spectacular trap where they, um, you know, would have casualties at a level that would question, would, would cause people to question um, the is uh, in in Israel the the will to fight because this fight is going to need um, weeks and months um, and if that's the case the Israeli will to fight um, isn't going to do well with spectacular um, scenes of defeat so but what we've seen from the Palestinians is the exact opposite like the Qassam brigades talked about how their fighters are actually, their anti-armor units are actually physically hanging explosives on the side of Merkava tanks. They're going, they're fighting close quarters battles where they're literally going in and hanging explosives off the tank. Um, and we're seeing anti-armor units, as you said, using homemade weaponry um, that um, has, Abu Ubaidah said 22 tanks as of, uh, I forget what day that was, Tuesday, they all, uh, run together. And we saw yesterday um, half a dozen um, tanks just in the in the videos that we saw. So uh, we're seeing significant losses, but also, yes, Israel has uh, an overwhelming uh, firepower superiority. And if they want to kill all the civilians um, that are there, I, it, there's not ingenuity that can stop that brutality. Um, you know, it, it's really brutal. The the double tap that Gada talked about, like that is just such a, a a brutal way to fight when you attack the rescuers that that show up at the scene. Um, there really just doesn't seem to be any red lines. You talked about their diplomats uh, referring to Dresden, which was a firebombing of civilians. Um, so yeah, the brutality is 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 possible if if Israel wants to fight that way. But what we haven't seen is the kind of face-to-face, -face, constant close quarters battles that will be necessary to penetrate into these houses and actually go down into the tunnel entrances and exits and fight. At this point, they're just dropping the buildings on top of I mean, they said in Jabalia that that was on top of a tunnel network, but we saw from that crater that crater wasn't 50 meters deep into yeah. the ground. And the Israelis and there were all are these saying fake reports I saw going around saying that, oh, that the, the, the ground collapsed after the, the bombing. And there's absolutely no evidence. There's no evidence of that. There's no evidence of the concrete that would line the tunnel. Do you think, do you think John, that the Israelis were, I mean, obviously it, it's, it's morally atrocious and reprehensible satanic to 
to drop a bomb, drop multiple bombs in the middle of a refugee camp. But do you think in a way they thought like, maybe they're under the refugee camp. Maybe if we just drop the biggest bombs we have on the refugee camp, it will reveal the tunnel network. In other words, do you think this was a, in a way them looking for the tunnels using explosives? Yeah, and that's what they've been doing. And then they, when they say they're targeting the tunnels, they, they, they have a writ that they believe justifies bringing down these houses on top of them. But nothing, no footage that we've seen has shown that. Presumably, if you're going to bomb from the air to destroy a tunnel, you would end up with a massive hole in the ground that connects to that tunnel. And we and, haven't seen anything and, like that and yet. John, you let's they have something called bunker busters which are of course provided by the united states and which are bombs designed to penetrate into the ground um and we've seen them using these kinds of bombs how far down do those kinds of bunker buster bombs go not 50 meters which is where the beginning of the tunnel network is and the, the Israelis talk their tunnel warfare people talk about how um, that Hamas dug those tunnels based on bunker busters, just like they dug the tunnels based on the wall that Israel built around the Gaza Strip. They adapt to those um, conditions. Uh, 50 meters below ground isn't able to be reached by a bomb. And the Israelis say there's tunnels that are 80 meters um, deep. They've found tunnels. They stumbled across a tunnel that was 70 meters um, deep. So they, they've already laid eyes I mean, on tunnels. I, I've, been, I've been in a tunnel in Gaza that was dozens of meters underground uh, when I was in Gaza. This was not obviously a military tunnel. It was on the Gaza border, but we actually went down in an elevator, an, an elevator on a platform, and, and the thing had like uh, rails going down the, the shaft. This was a very wide shaft, and there was a circular metal platform that you could park two cars on side by side. That's how big it was. And there were operators in safety gear and hard hats, and then when everything was clear, he pressed the button, and we went all the way down. And, you know, the, the hole at the top became quite small. I mean, I, I wasn't able to measure it, but it was, we went very deep underground. And then there was a horizontal tunnel from that shaft going out towards Egypt. This was a tunnel going under the Rafah crossing. This was in 2013. Now, I assume that you could have a shaft like that that goes very far down and tunnels going off in any number of directions. So I'm just saying that based on what I've seen with my own eyes in Gaza, and this was not a military tunnel, I can definitely believe that um, the, the they're capable of going very, very, very deep underground. Yeah, and Gaza's perfect for that. The The terrain is perfect for digging those tunnels really deep. In fact, you want to dig those tunnels really deep because of the sand and clay um, that's the nature of, of those tunnels. So, and and those are, those are transit tunnels for commercial use. Um, but one of the things that the, the Kassam Brigades have done with their tunnels is actually 
the offensive tunnels and the military tunnels is actually to make them very small so that you can't so that it's tight quarters in there so that you can't um so that it's more difficult to fight in them and so if they're saying that they went in those tunnels that were exposed in the offensive operations that we saw yesterday um, if you're closing, you're possible to close the entry, the, the, the entry and exit of a tunnel that comes above ground. Of course, that's possible to do because you can just bomb it closed. Um, but what the Israeli captives described was a spider web. And the spider web is that if you close one of those entrances, that just closes one of the nodes on the spider web. The tunnels have been built um, in order to lose tunnels parts of the tunnel can be lost without losing the main. That's part of the reason why they call it the metro, because there are main routes in the tunnel, and then they branch off um, to the outside from, from there as a spider web. So the Israelis will have to, if they're doing what they're saying they're going to do, they would actually want to go into that tunnel and then follow it through to find and to map um, the spider web. And that's the thing that they're not doing. And their number two of the IDF Gaza division told Reuters um, that bombing the tunnels doesn't work. It ca has caused minimal damage to the tunnels themselves. It's possible to cause damage to the entry points and exit points, which is what they're doing when they're laying waste to all of these um, areas. Um, they're trying to close the tunnels by piling people's lives. And, and you know, the Jabalia hit was 20, 20 buildings collapsed. So if if even if there's 10 people in, in each building, you're talking about hundreds of people dead. It's um, it's a brutal massacre. It's a cowardly way of fighting. Um, but this is encircling the Gaza Strip, I think, is this part of the war is, I think, expected there. That, that's the only way that they can do this if they're doing what they're saying is to encircle Gaza using the settlements. They use the settlements. Um, they've been traveling along the western side of Gaza, which has somewhat surprised people that they're moving along the sea, along the beach. But that's where their settlements were, because the Jewish settlers wanted the most beautiful Mediterranean coastline like uh like Gada and, and Haida said at the beginning, is that uh, the most beautiful beachfront area was settlements. So those areas are actually where it's easier to move through. Um, in Jabalia, they can't even move their armor through the streets. The streets are too narrow. So they have to use bulldozers, which is what they're doing, destroying the house and then bulldozing a path um so that they can set up a cordon at the defensive perimeter which is what i think we're seeing right now is just the first stages of the ground war well i think uh i think we're gonna leave it right there for now um just extraordinary analysis once again john elmer Thank you so much, uh, Ali Abunima and Asa Wynn Stanley and I and John. We are all um, really appreciative of uh, all of our listeners and viewers tuning in once again. We're obviously going to be back uh, for another uh, live stream broadcast uh, after the weekend. But uh, before we go, we did have uh, just a uh, an avalanche of really wonderful comments and questions. Um, so Asa, let's, uh, let's put some of those. I know even my mom wrote something, so. <laughs> oh, she did. Oh, I missed that. 
I should get <laughs> well, there have been a lot of comments, and I've been yeah. reading them as we go, and uh, it's just wonderful to see. Again, thank you guys for all the support to everyone. Oh, here we go. That's oh, that's that's uh umnora 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 thank you <laughs> thanks mom uh, thank you umnora um well yes we had um obviously we had a lot of support for roger waters earlier in the show who was very vocal and affecting and a lot of it what he was saying was resonating with uh, a lot of our supporters and viewers and people were very happy that he could speak freely as you know, he, you know, even Roger Waters, who is, you know, an internationally renowned rock star is feels the, you know, the censorship on the issue of Palestine. So people were, were very proud of that um, and supportive. And we had a lot of obviously support for Rada and Raida earlier in the show as well. Yeah. Um, our friend of the show, Helena Coban wrote in um, a lot of support Um for them and uh, a lot of support for the show as well in general so thank you everybody uh who wrote in and uh thank you for watching and thank you for supporting and thank you to tamara Nassar, as always yeah. thank, thank you everyone and don't forget go to the electronic electronic sign up for our mailing list that is a very important way to get around the social media censorship because uh email is still it's old-fashioned but it's robust you know they can't take that away from us at least not yet uh, <laughs> sign up for um for our mailing list read and share the stories if you want you can uh support our work because we are completely independent and that's why we're able to say the things other media won't say uh, but uh, just keep reading, sharing, shouting from the rooftops, find a protest in your town, in your city, in your location, go join it and, you know, scream from every place, stop the genocide. Indeed. Thank you so much, Ali, John and Asa. Uh, we will um, be back next time. See you guys uh, on the battlefield of, of the Electronic Intifada. Bye. Bye.